Today, I'm talking with Renee Evans. Renee is our first guest with experience in one of the biggest segments in the food industry, alcoholic beverages. She worked with many brands, both big and small, and has helped develop whole new segments of drinks like prepackaged mixed drinks and malt beverages. Although we talk a lot about the alcohol industry, she has tons of experience in many facets of the food industry. She's She's using all of this experience in her most recent venture, consulting. Renee and I had a great time sharing stories, and she taught me a lot about alcohol and what happens behind the scenes for some of these iconic brands. Um, Thanks for being with us today, Renee. I'm looking forward to talking to you. I know we've talked a lot in the past, but this time we're going to actually let somebody else in on our conversation. So... You're one of the few people that I get to talk to that actually went to the food industry on purpose because you got your degree from Purdue in food science. So tell me about how that came about. You know, when I was 15, I got a summer job where part of the deal was you had to take a class. And one day they took the class to this career resource center and I pulled, and it was organized by what kind of subjects do you like? So I went to the chemistry section and I pulled two files. One was food science and one was pharmacology. And my chemistry teacher's wife was a pharmacologist. And she said, just know that if that's what you think you want to do, be prepared to go all the way through to a PhD. Otherwise, all you're going to do is take blood samples from lab animals. And my 15-year-old brain kind of exploded because I couldn't wrap my head around having to go all the way through to a PhD. So I said, well, this food science thing looks pretty good. And uh, (laughs) about a year later, I had a a one-off babysitting thing, and these people were grilling me in their front hallway before they left their kid with an unknown teenager and asked me, you know, what do you think you want to do for college? And I said, well, I think I'm interested in food science. And the guy worked for me, Johnson. And he said, you know, we have two food science co-op students working with us. Uh, Why don't you plan to come in over your spring break and job shadow them? Great. And so I actually came in knowing that I wanted to do food science and that I know knowing that I wanted to do co-op. Wow. What a great thing. Yeah. And I, I, I can't imagine grilling someone for a babysitting job to ask them whether they wanted to go to college. <laughs> I just want to know if you'll keep my kid alive. You know, that's funny. So you enjoyed the job shadowing? That was something that you thought, this is something I want to do? Yeah. I mean, they were the, the ladies that I job shadowed were great. They were, um, go, they were in their junior year and uh, they talked about doing development work, doing pilot and scale-up work. They talked about um, food safety issues around infant formula. They talked about the classes that they had to take at Purdue. And I thought, okay, this all sounds pretty good. While you were at Purdue, did you get to do any internships or co-ops or anything? Yeah. uh, So actually, at the end of my freshman year, I interviewed for a co-op with Nestle, uh, Stouffer's Frozen Foods. And they said, "Mm, you know, we'd like for you to have a little more coursework before joining. So let's plan for next year. And in the meantime, see if you can get a summer job cooking. And 
Uh, I said, okay. So I, I went out that summer and got a job cooking at a Cajun restaurant, a white tablecloth kind of Cajun restaurant. And on my first day, the lady who was the kitchen supervisor quit one hour after I got there. And the manager who could not boil water said, great. So I need um, a soup for the salad bar. Before you leave tonight, I need uh, appetizers for the bar, a cream soup for the evening. I'll be in my office. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and how old were you? Like, what, 18, 19? I was 18, yeah. And did you do it? I mean, I'm stubborn that way, Maureen, yes. So <laughs> I went and got a menu and said, I better see if there's anything on here I can't make. Wow. And it came out and it was all right. Yeah, it was great. Uh, so I actually, one of the one of the few food science courses that I'd had at that time was one that Purdue calls FNN 205. I don't even know if they still teach it, but it was great because it was all the basics. It was different cuts of meat and how you cook them differently. It was um, sauces. It was uh, different kinds of cheeses, um, you know, lots of unusual things. We had to all cook and try different, you know, what happens if you leave the leavening out? Um, so it was all these different kinds of lab-based, kitchen-based things. And so I stood there at this restaurant and said, Okay, so if my class told me for a cup of white sauce, I need a tablespoon of fat, a tablespoon of starch, and a cup of liquid, I just have to do that on a much bigger scale. I'm going to make three gallons. Wow. So there was nobody else at the restaurant cooking? Just no, you? No, no. <laughs> and did you come back the next day? <laughs> I did. I did. I cooked, cooked all summer. They um, They actually got somebody from another one of the... Con restaurant concepts they own to come in later in the week, which was good because we did a big Sunday brunch buffet and uh, I, there's no way I could have pulled that off on my own. Um, but yeah, it was a, lots of learning, lots of learning that summer. And then the next summer I got to start at Stouffer's. Oh, good. So that was just a, a summer job at Stouffer's? No, uh, I did uh, May through December the first term, and then um, the next one I did the following year, I did a January through August. So they like okay. to have a little bit longer period of time than just a semester because project works takes time. Okay. And how many hours a week did you do it? Oh, it was daily. It was 40 hours a week. Um, and it was a great time to be there. There was... Um, there were a number of the product developers who were pregnant or getting ready to go out on maternity leave, and they desperately needed help. So they just threw projects at me, which was great. Oh, um, wonderful. And so I actually had the first product I developed on the market when I was 19. Wow. So you did this and went to school? No, no, no. You're When you're there, you're there. Okay. So this was, but you hadn't graduated yet. No, it was, um, I just took, it took me an extra year to graduate. Okay. Which, which I feel like was a really good trade-off because I graduated with actual experience and it, I feel like it helped me get a better job right out of school. I didn't have to start at second shift QC. I could start in R&D. Now, what was your first job after graduation? Um, Universal Flavors, which is now part of Sentient Flavors. It was beverage development. Now, how come um, Nestle didn't hire you? You know, the funny thing is, I mean, I had just actually finished doing the job, but then they changed their requirement to you had to have a master's. And the funny thing was a lot of the staff definitely did not have a master's. They had a very 
uh, wide variety of backgrounds at that time. They had dietitians, they had chefs, um, they had home economists. And so definitely a lot of the staff didn't have masters, but that was the requirement. So they didn't let those people go. They just were saying that was a requirement coming in. Correct. Oh, my. Okay. So when you went to Universal Flavors, what kind of products did you work on? That was kind of the beginning of the nutraceutical trend. That was the very beginning. So um, they basically threw anything that wasn't soft drinks or low juice content like high C, anything that wasn't those two, they threw at me. So mm-hmm. um higher juice content products, juice blends, alcohol, um, did a, um, a yogurt juice drink, which was not being done at that time. Um, what else? Bar mixes, um, you know, just whatever kind of projects got turned in. Tell, tell everybody a little bit about what's the difference of doing product development for a finished goods company and from an ingredient company, because there, there is a big difference there. There's a very big difference. So um, one of the first things that's different is the pace. So when you're doing applications work for an ingredient company, you might have 12 or 15 projects in your folder at any given time, but you're not going deep. You're just doing quick concept work. Um, and so the goal is to turn them around within a week or maybe 10 days at the outside, but, um, it's, it's quick and you just want a vehicle to demonstrate the flavor. And sometimes clients will ask you for production directions, you know, a full production formula on that scale and some specs, but, um, generally it's kind of quick prototyping, Uh, Whereas on the finished goods side, you have to look at a much bigger scope. You're looking, you're looking at um, market research on the front end to figure out how to tailor the product. You're looking at uh, what ingredients you have available, what kind of production capability you have, shelf life, regulatory, um, validating sensory results, in consumer panels, um, much more detailed specs, and then supporting manufacturing once you get going. And how long could that take? I think the longest I had something take was about two years, but a typical cycle was maybe 12 to 15 months, sometimes shorter. And it just depended on whether you could get enough information about shelf life and get the regulatory piece done in that length. And when you're in a company where you make a finished goods, you're depending on some of your ingredient companies to do that prototype thing for you to see if you're going to use their flavors, their ingredients, things like that, right? You know, one of the best things about working with suppliers that way is they tend to stay really on top of trend information and they know all the ins and outs of their particular ingredients and interactions. And so that was one of the first things that I learned right out of school working for an ingredient company is you don't have to know everything. You just have to be willing to use your resources. So if I'm trying to make a product to as a vehicle to sell a flavor and it's going to need some kind of a gum system in it, I don't have to know everything about gums. I just have to call a gum supplier. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, a lot of suppliers support each other in that way, which is nice. Um, And then you kind of learn as you go. 
since this was your first job and it's so long ago, were there any things you worked on then that are just like commonplace now? Something that was novel then and you're like, wow, we're the first one. Because I remember talking to a gentleman like 20 years ago and he was the first person to make a chicken nugget. I mean, that doesn't seem like any big claim to fame, but you're the first one and now chicken nuggets are everywhere. Everybody does that. So was there anything you worked on that you went, oh, like you did mention yogurt drinks. I guess we didn't have those. Fortified soft drinks or fortified tea or lemonade, you know, which is very commonplace now. Or um, who remembers Zima? Zima, what is Zima? Zima was a product that was put out by Coors and it was the first, um, it was the precursor to the RTDs now, the Smirnoff Ices, all the seltzers, um, but they were, they were malt base. And it had a little bit of citrus and citrus and grapefruit, and but it the base was really malty. You could definitely tell it was a malt-based product. And so now they've done a really good job of cleaning those up, and they don't taste like beer. But was it in a blue bottle? It had it was clear with a blue label, and it kind of had some grooves on the sides. I think there was one that used to give me a, a, just an awful headache. I remember, and I never drank it again. It sounded like that one. I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah, we had those kind of beverages. I remember the first wine cooler in college. We made wine coolers. They didn't sell wine coolers. You know, that was something you just, I mean, it's like, how hard was it to take some wine and put some soda in it? You had a wine cooler. Well, California Cooler was the first one. Remember that they put them in two liter bottles? Do you remember those? No. Yeah, California Cooler was the first one to put it in a, a package that way. And they started the whole RTD thing, but the Cal coolers were in two liter bottles. And then they started going to the individual serve and there was Bacardi breezers. Um, um, Jim Beam did some things overseas in cans, Beam and Cola and um, Beam and Lemon Lime. And actually your first job after um, Universal Flavors was in the uh, alcoholic beverages, you went to uh, Beam Foreman or Brown, Brown Foreman, I say Brown Foreman. So tell us a little bit about that's that's the exciting part. You know, it was funny. I mean, just culturally, it was very different um, going from a very conservative ingredient supplier to um, a finished products company who is all about image. So I remember going for my interview and I. I walked in, you know, my lab at, at Universal was um, painted cinder block walls in the middle of the building. And we had to, you know, we used washable pipettes. You had to, and we scrapped over beakers. You know, we were putting our initials on beakers because there weren't enough. And I remember walking into the Forester Center at Brown Foreman. And, you know, there's this big five-story open atrium area with bamboo and a water feature and glass elevators. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm at the Hyatt. <laughs> um but so culturally it was very different going uh going there and then you know when i had been at sensi at universal they told us you know now listen if you go out to lunch with a client and they order a glass of wine with lunch you don't and two weeks into my job at brown foreman i'm sitting at my desk at 8 30 and i'm thinking i wonder if the liquor store is open yet (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but boy, things have really changed. Yeah, that's funny. Well, the 
It's interesting that all the alcoholic beverage companies, most of the distilleries, they want the public to come visit them and tour their facility. But most food companies, you can't get in there. You're not getting to see what they do. But the distilleries are like, it's a party. Well, you're seeing the parts they want you to see. Oh, of course. Well, of course. They, they take you on the fun part. But, but it's interesting. They want the public to come to their facility. You know, they... They want you to join in on the fun. Well, and I mean, you know, that's actually something that Brown Corman has done really well is create um, home places for their different brands, places where people can come and connect with the brand and see how things are made. But those experiences and those locations are very different from where the work gets done, you know, where the blending and the bottling is, where the R&D center is. And so those are not places that people get access to. What kind of products did you work on while you were there? Oh, gosh, I worked on a little bit of everything. I started off on uh, Jack Daniels Country Cocktails, and which were kind of the category leader at the time. And line extensions uh, and cost reductions on that brand. And then... Started working on tropical freezes, same thing, line extensions and cost reductions. Um, one, one of the more interesting ones, though, one morning on a Monday, uh, our CEO came in and he said, I was at this party over the weekend where people were talking about things they had bad drinking experiences with and they were never touching again. And Southern Comfort came up. Well, Southern Comfort was our second largest brand. And he said, whatever that yuck factor is, get rid of it. And I sat there in my head and I'm thinking, teenage bad judgment, how am I going to get rid of that? (laughs) (laughs) But they literally took the formula out of the vault. It was on dark purple paper with black ink and, um, you know, keep it safe, keep it secure, Uh, But of course, I mean, I had to throw it in a spreadsheet and it's interesting. Here's a piece of alcohol beverage history that people might not know. Um, Prior to the 1970s, you didn't really have to file a formula with TTB. A letter from your company attorney saying, it's all good, we promise, was sufficient. And in the late 60s, early 70s, they started requiring that you file your actual formula with the TTB. And there was a lot of pushback from industry. You know, they said, this is our intellectual property. We don't want to have to give out details. And um, because we're Americans and we don't like authority all that much, people started looking for ways around that. Um, And people who file TTB formulas now will know that you put in ranges, you put in intermediates, you put in all these kinds of things to sort of protect um, exactly what's in there. But there are certain things you still have to disclose. But Brown Foreman held out for another few years just sending the letter from the attorney. And then when they finally had to file a formula, they made it so layered and so complicated that they figured, well, even if they have all the paperwork, they're still not going to know what's in it. Um, So that was a challenge in taking that apart to try and optimize the formula and then put it back together again. Now, what do they do about maintaining their secret formula or their integrity when ingredients change? How do they, how do they maintain that? You know, it's tricky with all the the acquisition that has happened in flavors too. You know, you almost need a little bit of a family tree. So if you're looking at um, 
an old legacy formula that had an Otten's flavor in it, well, you know, you kind of have to know that, okay, they got acquired by IFF. I need to call IFF. So, um, you know, that was one of the challenging pieces, just doing the genealogy on who used to be who and where to call now for ingredients. But, um, you know, if you're actively purchasing then it doesn't it they don't lose the formula right you're mm-hmm. you're continuously ordering and maintaining it okay so what did you do about that yuck factor did you get it out of there for southern comfort or i think so we ended up with some good consumer test scores and um and then we went about uh one of my colleagues that i worked with in channel marketing we set about trying to take southern comfort every place rum went you know, even though it was brown, we and people associated with whiskey, we went on a mission to take it any place that rum went. And we did some really cool collaborations with uh, Island Oasis and, um, you know, tricked out some old uh, draft beer carts with the before fountain syrups were bag and box. They were in these pressurized canisters that you would get. For, and so we got a hold of a bunch of these canisters and mixed up Southern Comfort Hurricanes and Jack Daniels Lynchburg Lemonades and, and put them in these um, draft carts and took them to the infield at Kentucky Derby and Navy Pier. And, um, you know, it was fun. And were they, ex- did people like them? Oh, it was great. I mean, places where we did these promotions with the Southern Comfort Hurricane, you know, where they might sell previously one case of Southern Comfort in a year. They were going through seven cases in the promo period. It was great. Tell everybody about how you get to test these at work. I mean, we can't have a bunch of drunk food scientists hanging out, can we? (laughs) No, no. There's a lot of taste and spit. And it's, you know, it's um, pipette kind of quantities. You know, we're not talking a whole serving. But Mm -hmm. You know, at the same time, that can be tricky, too, because you still have to think about somebody who's going to consume a whole serving of something. And is it is it going to be too much in a whole serving? Yeah, too sweet. Or too lots of things. There was a, another company that I did a product for where they were a donut company and they wanted to bring people into the company at different into their stores at different day parts and they thought that frozen drinks were the way to get them there which is a little bit of a disconnect but yeah okay um so we developed these powdered drink mixes that they mixed with ice and some water in their units and they used three scoops for a small, four for a medium, five for a large. Well, they came back and they said, okay, now we want diet versions because diet frozen drinks are what you think of with donuts, but okay. Yeah. Okay. They said, now we, we still want the three, four, five scoop ratio for small, medium, and large for the diet versions, because we don't want our, our people in the stores to get confused. And I said, well, you know, that's tricky because the only way to get the same bulk without calories is fiber. And they said, oh, that's even better. Uh, It's good for you. It's health food. I said, well, I'm not sure you understand. You know, that large is 20 ounces. That's going to be like 
12 grams of fiber. And they said, oh, that's great. It's going to be so good for you. And sometimes you have to just let people figure it out for themselves. You know, sometimes all the warning and all the cautions in the world don't do you any good. They just have to figure it out themselves. So we did a pilot batch of the diet, three, four, five scoop scenario, and we Mm -hmm. sent it to their um, home store where they had a setup on the first floor where employees could go. And they announced to the employees they had these diet frozen drinks down in the store, go get some. And I was just waiting about 1030. The phone (laughs) rang. (laughs) And (laughs) he said, well, uh, they, they taste really good and people seem to be enjoying them, but, um, well, people are starting to worry about their commutes and and the bathrooms have been really busy. (laughs) Oh my God. And I said, well, we yeah, tried to I warn you. That was a lot of fiber. And he <laughs> said, "Well, yeah, I don't think this is going to work." <laughs> it had a medicinal effect. We could put that on the label. <laughs> yeah. So, so sometimes sip testing works, and sometimes sip testing is not the best plan. Oh, I have talked to people that worked in alcoholic beverages. They said sometimes they were you know, told to get a ride to work or whatever. You're not driving today because they're going to do a little bit more in-depth testing. And, and I know that some of them had every, I don't know, Thursday night, Friday, whatever, after work, people could have, um, you know, could, they would have a happy hour so they could do a little bit more than just sip it. Because like you said, a little, a, a tablespoon of it might not bother you, but, uh, a whole glass of it might be awful. Yes, they have to put things in place so that you're not, you know, behaving in a way that could harm you or others, but, um, or the company. So we did actually sign code of conduct agreements upon starting with the company, saying that we agree that, um, you know, if we ever had a DUI or a public intoxication, something like that, we agree that they could fire us immediately. Um, and so they're very cautious about those kinds of things. Now, was was Brown Foreman family owned? Yes. I mean, publicly traded and there is public stock, but the family owns the majority of the stock. Okay. And the, is it still that way today? I believe it is. Yeah. What other kind of things did you work on there? What other kind of? One of the fun ones was... Um, At that time, a lot of the upper management believed that women didn't go to liquor stores, that liquor stores were some dark, scary place that women didn't go. And we all laughed, you know, but we thought, well, you know, maybe we're different because we work in the environment. But um, we said, we can't leave these consumers out. Even if you believe that that's true, you know, that's 50% of the population. We can't leave that out of who Mm -hmm. we develop products for. That's untapped territory. So we decided that we wanted to really figure out what women want. (laughs) And you can imagine that was very interesting. So we did a bunch of focus group testing. And unsurprisingly, women want everything. Um, so they wanted something that, 
you know, was easy. They could keep on the door in the refrigerator and just pour themselves a glass after the kids were all in bed, if that was what they wanted to do. But that they could also dress up and make into something special for girls' night. So, you know, thinking to optimize for straight or mixed consumption, that's difficult. Mm -hmm. um, they wanted something that looked kind of elegant, um, that felt like it was going to be a treat. They um, wanted the sophistication of spirits, but the lack of burn that comes with wine. Um, they wanted, they didn't want to have any alcohol burn, but they wanted it to be kind of at the, you know, 12 to 15% alcohol at least. Um, and so, it, you know, we got a lot of information in those focus groups, but those were some tall marching orders. Well, what, what causes the burn? What is the, what the, what is the burn that they don't want? I know, I know what it is, but I mean, I know what it feels like, but I don't know what causes it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, if you take a 14% wine and a 14% spirit, the, the burn is, com the mouthfeel are completely different. So there's just some residual um, buffers in the fruit and um, that come through that just sort of act as smoothing agents. And so I had to figure out how to get that smoothing incorporated into our product. And lots of flavor suppliers have masking and smoothing agents, but none really did the trick. So we created something internally to be kind of a smoothing agent that really did give you that same mouthfeel. Sometimes it's about um, in higher proof products, that uh, flash of evaporation of alcohol is kind of what contributes to the burn too. So if you can make it a little heavier mouthfeel, then you don't get that flash. And so that's what the women didn't like. I mean, I don't like that when I, if I drink whiskey straight, I love whiskey. If I drink it straight, it just, whew, it's a little gasoline on the fire. Yeah, and they wanted to be able to have more than one, you know, and feel like they could still function. Oh, I would not have been your your um, ideal candidate because I'm I'm one and done. <laughs> I don't want more than one. But also, you had to deal with different age groups. I'll bet you the uh, the younger women wanted something different than the older women. You know, honestly, I would say that we I saw more differences in what a demographic wanted among men than women. Young really? men were kind of unto their own. Like what? What did they want? Um, we were, we worked on some cider concept. This one was a little more elegant. This one was a little more uh, British pub. This one was a little more, um, you know, Vermont, apple orchard kind of a vibe. So we had different storyboards with different feel about them. And then we threw in a couple for products that were already on the market. And at that time, Gallo was testing um, an, a cider called Hornsby. And it had a picture on the label that was, um, you know, the old UK pubs where the the doorstep is right up on the sidewalk and they've got a little bit of a sign hanging over that looks almost like a shield. 
Mm-hmm. Well, they had that was kind of their their emblem was that kind of signage, and it was a picture of a rhinoceros in profile, and the brand name was Hornsby. Okay, and the we were talking to young men, twenty one to twenty five years old, and because we were thinking, you know, maybe we could take share from beer. And that's that was a big beer demographic was young men, legal drinking right. age to 25. And they kept the guys kept coming back to the Hornsby and the moderator in the room. She was great. She was uh, trying to get to the bottom of, well, why? What do you like about it? Do you like the bottle, the shape of the bottle? Do you like the taste of the product? Do you like the sweetness level, the apple impact? What do you like? And finally there was one guy in the group and he goes, well, I I think I like the name. And she goes, what do you like about the name? And he said, well, it reminds me of horny. (laughs) And so sometimes with young men, 21 to 25, it has to do with the, the feel of it, not even what's in the bottle. The name of it. Yeah. The image of it. There you go. I'm not surprised. I thought that's where you're going to end up. I was like, I'm not surprised. That's what I would expect. So when you were at Brown Foreman, had the home brewing, home distillery, little distilleries on every corner, was that happening yet? Definitely not. Um, The beer microbrews were starting, um, but... The tricky thing at that time was the the guy who drove the beer truck, he was the sales guy. And it was way more profitable to load up the truck with um, Miller and Budweiser and Coors because, you know, you're selling multiple cases at every location you go to versus the microbrew, you know, you're doing a case here and a case there. So, you know, it was a tough it was tough getting distribution because the guys driving the truck didn't want to put it on the truck. Mm-hmm. Um, but Jack Daniels, we actually did Jack Daniels beer. Okay. And, and there were great products, but um, it was, it was just not the time for it yet. And we didn't try in the right markets. Um, now craft distilling wasn't yet a thing because the taxes, the tax breaks weren't there yet. And so, trying to think how long it's been, maybe it's been over 10 years now that some of the tax laws changed that made it more favorable for there to be craft distilling. So wasn't there a law passed or something? You weren't allowed to do it under, you weren't, you weren't allowed, you were allowed to do home brewing or home distilling and that, and, but now they opened it up. It had to be volumes for personal consumption. Um, and, And so they changed some of that and allowed for, larger volumes. And that's, honestly, that's a, the whole concept around that has been something the distillery industry has always fought is that the tax laws for beer, wine, and spirits are so, there's such a big difference in the tax that you pay. So you could have, and that's why you see the package size differences in the store. You might see a spirit-based product in a smaller can or a smaller bottle in these RTDs, um, whereas you've got a full 12 ounce bottle for something that's malt or sugar malt based, um, because their taxes are like a 10th of what the spirits would be. And you just can't afford to compete at the price point 
in the same size containers. Well, I know it varies from state to state because I live in Pennsylvania and we have state liquor stores and they tax it heavily. You can go somewhere else and buy the same product for half the price. Yeah, the three-tier system is another uh, point of difference in alcohol beverages is you, you know, you're... You can't make, distribute, and sell as as the same person. It has to go through three tiers of distribution, um, and that does make it more difficult and more restrictive. And then that's federally, but then you're right. In states, there are some states where the liquor stores are run by the state, um, and often they don't have as good a selection. They're a smaller footprint store. You won't see the big superstores that have big selections either in state stores. When you were at Brown Foreman, did they have, I mean, now I can go almost anywhere and there's a distillery. There's probably a distillery within 15 minutes of my house. And that wasn't 20 years ago. No, it really wasn't. And now they give tours of their little distillery. I was at one the other a couple of weeks ago and you got to go through and they showed you how they make everything. I'm not, you know, it's obviously an abbreviated version, but because it's a very small, small facility, all fit in a little house. And now you can go to wineries. I mean, it seems like the competition, I don't know, would someone like Brown Foreman feel like this is competition or they feel like this has enhanced their business? How would, how would that go? You know, I mean, at that time, of course, you could tour Jack Daniels. Uh, now it was in a dry county, so you couldn't taste at the end. But um, so you know you could definitely tour the distillery at Jack Daniels then. And then while I was there, the the Lebro and Graham um, distillery came online, and they built a really lovely visitor center there with um, you know a lot of information on the history of the brand, but also of bourbon making. Um, and so it was one of the first smaller brands to to really do that. But yeah, you're right. Now the main street is is Distillery Row in Louisville. When I went to Jack Daniels, they had gave us the whole tour. And then they did let us have they were allowed legally to give you like a teaspoon to taste that wasn't considered consuming it or something. So and they were very strict about you couldn't share. It wasn't like Four people in the group and three didn't want it and the one would drink it all. They were they were very strict about it. And so I always did find that funny that Jack Daniels was made in Dry County. And to this day, that's still true, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was when we went on the tour, they always have you standing around where it's fermenting, I guess. Now you have to understand I'm not a food scientist and I never made any whiskey. But they all like, if you lift the lid and drop it down, then you get angel something. What was it? Oh, the angel share. Angel share. Yeah. And everybody was, you know, so excited about doing this. And I kept thinking, you guys, they're, they're just taking videos of you all sticking your nose in the, <laughs> and doing this and there's nothing going on. Is that really something, angel share? Yeah, that's what it's always been called. So um, over, you know, barrels are not airtight. Um, which is not entirely bad for the aging process. It allows expansion and contraction of the wood, which brings the 
the liquid into the wood and squeezes it out. And it actually extracts those lovely sweet brown notes and the color that we like in aged bourbon. But again, because they're not airtight, um, you do get evaporation and the evaporation Mm -hmm. is the angel's share. So you, you always have to walk that line between, you know, aging it a long time to get a really great, flavorful, colorful product and not losing too much. But everybody stood around those barrels like a little, you know, and they'd lift the lid and drop it and everybody would be like, oh, and I was like, oh, they're just taking, this is like, um, uh, you know, candid camera. They're just making us do this. It smells pretty good. It does. I do like the smell of whiskey. I am a partial to whiskey. After Brown Foreman, you you left and you went to Cary. So you left your alcoholic beverage behind. Sort of, but not entirely. So this division of Cary uh, was assembled because they looked at their acquisitions and said, you know, we've got a bunch of things here with the same customer base. There's a lot of food service customers. And so they created this group down in Dallas and... Um, we did custom products for national food service chains. So I led the beverage side. I had a counterpart on the food side and they looked at seasoning blends and coating systems and things like that. And then on my side, we did, um, we did all the flavored syrups for Starbucks. We did some caramel and chocolate syrups for coffee companies as well, but we did um, syrups for, tea and lemonade. Um, think think the add-ins at Sonic. We did work for Sonic. Um, but we also did cocktail mixes for casual dining like chilies and on the border or TGI Fridays. So there was still a little bit of the alcohol work on the side. I want to skip ahead to the last couple, last couple years. You worked for some different distilling companies. Totally, a totally different thing. Smaller, and tell us, tell us about the biggest, tell us about those two companies and, and what you were doing there. You know, I mean, large companies are great. They have a lot of resources um, to get things done, lots of good infrastructure for the business processes. Um, but oftentimes you only see a small piece of the business, you know, your particular piece of the business in large companies. And so small companies, um, you know, you tend to do whatever needs doing. Um, Even that small division of Cary that I worked for, we weren't up in Beloit with the rest of Cary. We were down in Texas. And I, you know, remember one day I pulled into the parking lot and the plant manager was out in the parking lot with a drill installing speed bumps. And so... You know, when I had a new employee in the group start, I had to go to the our closet that was the server room and find a place to plug them in. And so, you know, smaller companies, you you don't often have some of the same resources, so you need more creative problem solving and you wear more hats. But um, at Green River, when I started there, you know, they were reviving the old brand that um, had been hadn't been produced in a long time. Um, And while the bourbon was aging, we had this separate group down in Charleston where, you know, we were making some money while we were waiting for the bourbon to age. So we did custom development for a lot of new brands or smaller brands. Um, 
And so, you know, lots of problem solving involved there, lots of figuring out how to do things differently. How long does bourbon take to age? You know, at at two years, you can call it Kentucky straight or straight bourbon. Um, but it doesn't have a lot of the notes that we really associate with good bourbon at two years. It doesn't have quite as much color. It doesn't have a lot of those rich, um, complex notes. Four to six years is kind of the sweet spot. But you can do um, flavored products in one and two-year-old that are pretty good. Um, And then we did some different finishing techniques for some of the two-year-old as well. So um, Green River had a proprietary ultrasonic technology that we would use for finishing where you could use that technology with or without wood staves um, if you wanted some extra color and extra wood aging kind of notes. Um, And so um, infrared, convection, direct heat, different kinds of stave treatments um, got you different notes and different color. You know, there would be some that were smoky and some that were kind of mocha, um, you know, different kinds of staves you could use. And then you could even soak the staves. So, um, you know, we could soak them in sherry or port. We could soak them in um, brandy or, um, you know, different kinds of finishing techniques. Now, you said they were reviving one, so they were starting new. They weren't, they didn't have any bourbon hidden in the back to sell while they were waiting for the other one? No, the... um, the old distillery in Owensboro had been sitting empty for, gosh, more than 30 years um, and was in a state of disrepair. It needed a lot of work done to it. So, um, you know, they built all that back up and started distilling, but then it was going to take time. Renee, what's the difference between a food scientist at an alcoholic beverage company and those master brewers? Food science is more broad, you know, at, in food science, we, um, are looking at all different kinds of processing. We're looking at, um, totally different regulatory. Um, we're looking at a broader variety of ingredients and storage conditions, um, different microbiology and quality concerns, um, So a master distiller, you know, they may be an expert on, um, you know, which type of corn gives you uh, the best kind of mash or, um, you know, the different temperatures to use for mash or how long to let it ferment, which yeast strains work the best. Um, But it's all in a very specific category. And then, you know, they also need to know... um, barrel makers, they need to, um, you know, honestly, one of the big things is, is just managing the storage. You can't even imagine. I mean, when you're going to put something in storage for anywhere from two to six years, um, you know, keeping track of all of that, where did I put it? How can I get to it? If, if somebody wants it earlier, they want to check on it. Um, you know, but that whole, 
storage logistics piece is huge. Most of these um, whiskey companies, distilleries, they they have both though, food science and master distillers. Don't they have both? The smaller ones, no. They don't? The smaller ones, mm-mm. No. What part are they missing? The food scientist? Well, there are special fermentation science programs now um, that just target really that piece. The, mm-hmm. you know, the grains, the gelatinous, gelatinization temperatures of the grains, what kinds of yeast to use, how to give the yeast a boost to give you better output and production, um, the mechanics around all the distillery equipment. Um, you know, so there are fermentation science um, programs that are target the specific things that they're looking for there. I feel like the uh, public image of the distilling business is that it's rustic. It's an arts and crafts. It's, you know, and what's the reality? I'd say it's a little of both. Um, you know, there are some of those in some of that aspect in the smaller producers um, and, and they're the keepers of history. You know, they, they love the lore around it. They love the stories of how it got started. Um, and it's a, you know, kind of a dance with nature, you know, getting the right amount of cycling and having the right grain crops. And, um, but at the same time, it's a business and, um, you've got to do a certain amount of volume, to really make good money. And so, you know, um, a little bit of a miss timing wise in any of your processes on the way to the barrel can cost you a lot of money. Um, it's the energy inputs are big. Um, you know, it takes a lot of power and energy to run a plant like that. Um, you know, so there, and, and, Finance is a big piece of it too. So um, there's there's art there, but there's science and accounting that and logistics that are a big pieces of it too. What kind of volumes were these smaller co- the companies you were working for? What were they doing? I don't know if they share that information. Yeah, I'm not sure. Well, give us a give us a, like a general like what type of things Brown Foreman's putting out compared to smaller ones. Um, a smaller one might do 8,000 barrels a year. A medium-sized one might be, do 20,000 barrels a year. Um, I don't even know what Jack Daniels does, but it's monstrous, right? Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're filling up multiple rick houses a year. And then, you know, they have many, and then they, mm-hmm. it rotates. You clear one out, and then you start filling it up again. You were talking about the warehousing. I've been to several distilleries, large ones and small ones, where people can purchase a barrel, put their name on it, and it goes into the rotation. And I guess they could even visit it if they wanted. But they wait so long, and then they get the phone call that they could take it now, or it could stay there. and what the ramifications is on staying there. But I don't know what they would cost now, but at the time I think they were talking about like $10,000 for a barrel, 20,000, some other places. And then that included, and some of it included different things. Like they would bottle it for you when it was ready. It was bottled. It had your label and everything. And you got the whole barrel. 
Mm-hmm. It varies. We did um, some custom distilling for people at Southern Distilling when I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they get to pick their mash bill. You know, somebody might want heirloom corn or heirloom rye. Um, we didn't give them an opportunity to pick a, a yeast of their own, but, um, you know, they could pick their grain bill um they could pick a volume, so many barrels, um, you know, you, they could pick how long they think they wanted to age. But like I said, you know, imagine you've got 19,000 barrels in one spot Mm -hmm. and somebody wants to get a sample from their barrel every six months. How are you going to find that? How are you going how many barrels do you have to move to get to that to sample it? I would discourage them. <laughs> I would say you don't want to sample that for two years. We'll find it again in two years. Yeah, those are things you kind of as a as a contract manufacturer, you kind of have to think about how you want to set that up and what you want to allow at the beginning so that you know you're not killing yourself on the backside trying to find things and all mm-hmm. the labor that's required in half a day just to find that barrel. It doesn't sound like it would be good to sample it so much. It's not really a matter of whether it's good for it, but you know, if you have sampled a 750 milliliter bottle six times on its way to aging, well you're diminishing what's left to bottle in that barrel. I mean, it doesn't really hurt the barrel to get in and out of it, but um, you're diminishing what you have left to commercialize. Um, But like I said, it's really, you know, it's harder for the the contract manufacturer. Now, you had talked about some of the education has changed. Um, I I would, I shouldn't assume, but has there been courses and classes and even degrees in college now more towards the wine and beer and spirit making? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of schools that have fermentation science programs now that they look at everything from, you know, kombucha and yogurt to distilled spirits and and wine. So they'll look at any kind of the fermented products. Mm -hmm. Um, And they've been a little bit slow to get going. Um, and find and keep funding. But um, I've got a a friend who's a professor at uh, University of Illinois at Carbondale, and they have a program there. Um, I worked with some people at Southern Distilling who had gone to Appalachian State, and they've got a program there. So um, there are a number of schools that have or are creating fermentation programs. This is kind of a question just I want to ask. Um, Is there a difference between Kentucky whiskey and Irish whiskey besides the the taste? Bourbon has to go into a new oak barrel, a new charred oak barrel. So um, in a new barrel, all the wonderful extractives are present. You get first crack at them. And then the char is what gives you the great color. And you can age a shorter amount of time in a new barrel to a greater effect because there's more there to extract. So Canadian whiskeys, Irish whiskeys, scotch, um, they go into used barrels, which is nice because it creates a market for the used bourbon barrels. 
um, but there's less there to extract. So you have to leave it in longer to, that's why you'll see, you know, 12 year old scotch, but you can drink six year old bourbon and it's got more color and flavor um, because it's gone into a new barrel. Oh, I, I left out the Canadian whiskey. I didn't even think about that. So that's the only difference between the two? Ingredients are pretty much the same, everything? Um, no, the mash bills are different. Um, so with bourbon, you need 51% corn for your fermentables. And then you can fill in with rye and wheat. And um, you want some malted barley for the enzymes that are there. Now, with with scotch, you're using the malted barley. And so you'll get different notes from the different grains. Um, even in bourbon, where you've got 51% from corn, you know, something with a high rye is going to be more spicy. And something with more wheat is going to be a little smoother and sweeter. Um, so you can imagine if you have all malted barley, you know, if you see those differences, even from something that's 10 or 20% of the mash bill, well, if it's 100% different in the mash bill, you're going to see a lot of differences. A lot of distillers have a proprietary yeast strain that they maintain. And whatever byproducts the yeast forms during the fermentation can contribute a lot to the flavor. So, for example, with Jack Daniels, it produces a lot of um, ethyl acetate and isoamyl alcohol, the yeast does, and those are very distinctive notes in Jack Daniels. But another yeast strain might produce something a little bit different, a little um, softer. What's the, what's the difference between blended, single malt? I mean, you see all these different labels they put on them. A blended can have some, it's say maybe 20% bourbon and 80% whiskey. So the bourbon is going into a new barrel. Um, you're going to get more color and flavor, but you might put 80% whiskey with that that has gone into a used barrel, so it's a little less expensive to make. Um, you're going to get a lighter flavor. Um, you might even add back the TTB regulatory piece there allows for 2.5% of what they call adjunct, so color and flavor. You can add back to the blended products. Um, oh, okay. So you're using a little less expensive distillate, and then you're able to add some flavors back. Now, would that have been something you would have worked on? Um, not typically. Who would have done that? At Brown Foreman, there was a separate whiskey development group that did those kinds of projects. So you were more on the making cocktails and things like that from the from the drinks? So I did... I did Cocktails, I did beer, I did some high spirit, high proof spirits products that were not whiskey. I did um, some neutral spirit based things. I did a gin before I left. Um, so kind of a variety. What was the most outrageous things that you tried that obviously never made it to market because they were a disaster? If you do your homework on the front end and you collaborate with marketing and market research, you know, you're going to weed out those ideas before you get very far. Oh, so you weren't doing any mad, mad scientist mixing in the lab just to see what would be funny to make? No, not too much. But um, there were some things that I thought were pretty good that never made it out of test market. Um, 
when we were working on the the products for women, they came in one day and they said, okay, so we want something that is the essence of Southern comfort, but not whiskey and not brown. Okay. I made that face <laughs> too, Maureen. <laughs> okay. So you kind of, th- you know, you break down what, well, what is Southern comfort? It's, it is the whiskey. Um, it's some other sweet brown notes. It's vanilla and stone fruit and citrus. So if I can't use the whiskey and I don't want it to be brown, I'm going to have to focus on the stone fruit and the citrus and maybe sneak a little bit of vanilla in there for some sweet brown. Um, so we did a, a product like that that was in a really beautiful frosted glass bottle and um, – it was called Southern Twist, and uh, it was very mixable. It was very drinkable and smooth, and um, but it just, you know, that's, that's one of the difficult things at a, a larger company versus a smaller one is that, you know, if, if you couldn't sell 120,000 nine-liter cases in the first year, they didn't want to talk about it. Mm. Um, and so it's tough for a new brand to hit that, you know, you might only hit 25,000 in the first year as you're educating people what it is and, and how to use it and where to find it. And, um, you know, it's hard to hit 120,000 cases out the gate. Did you ever get a family member who came in with an idea and you guys had to do it? No, I can't think of anything. Cause I've heard stories from all different types of food scientists where they'll make a great product and this somebody higher up CEOs VP says, ah, I don't like that. And it gets killed. There is no marketing. There is no research. There is no testing it. They just was like, nah, I don't think so. Well, now there were some things that got killed that way. Some products that, you know, got discontinued or never made it out of test market for those reasons. Was there anything that you made that at the time was just too new and circled back a couple years later, or even now you're not there. You haven't been there in years. You see something and you're like, wow, that's something we tried 20 years ago. Yes. Yes. There are a bunch of those actually. Um, when I left Brown Foreman, my, my former boss was there for a long time after I had gone and, um, she had all my lab notebooks and, um, she would call me up from time to time and go, do you remember when you worked on that thing with the, you know, and after a while it was hard to remember, but, um, she used a lot of those things as a jumping off point. But the one that one, a couple of my former colleagues and I laugh about right now is <clears throat> the, the Jack and Coke thing, new Jack and Coke. And, and, and we just look at each other and kind of laugh and roll our eyes because, um, that's one of the things that we were doing really big in with channel marketing mm-hmm. um, more than 20 years ago, uh, working with not just Coca-Cola, but also some of their other divisions, the Minimaid and some of the other divisions and um, doing partnership things more on premise than in packages. And so, um, you know, we worked with Coke and have you seen, you know, the frozen carbonated machines like you see in 7-Eleven where you mm-hmm. get the frozen Coke or the yeah. frozen cherry? Well, we were doing frozen carbonated Jack and Cokes on premise. People went nuts for that. Um, 
and did, you know, in some soft serve machines, did um, vanilla soft serve with Barks root beer, bottling syrup and Jack and did um, Jack's root beer floats. Um, you know, so we were doing a lot of those things on premise at the time. And so now, you know, new Jack and Coke in a can and we're like, mm-hmm, yeah, it's new. Have you noticed that there's so many ready to drink beverages that cocktails out there in cans and bottles that I just marvel at because I'm thinking, are you people not capable of taking some whiskey and put it and put some ginger ale in it? You know, I would say consumers have a very short attention span these days and they're always looking for what's new. Um, and I think the thing that really instigated that trend and really played to that short attention span, at least in this category, was Smirnoff Ice. And Smirnoff Ice came out with their original flavor, which was kind of a lemon citrus. Um, mm-hmm. And it was malt-based, so they could do six a six-pack of 12 ounces for cheaper than we could do the little 200-mil four-packs um, with spirits in it. Mm-hmm. And But then... Once they got people looking at the brand, they were really good about just bam, 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 knocking out line extensions and all different kinds of flavors. And so, um, you know, people would try this one and then the next one. What's the new flavor? And, uh, you know, kind of building into that what we now would call FOMO, right? Um, But I think that the consumer's short attention span plays into why that category is so crowded now. Explain the difference between a malt beverage and a spirit-based one. So the malt beverages are are taxed like beer, which is mm-hmm. around a tenth of the tax per proof gallon than spirits. So if you had a 4% alcohol malt-based beverage and a 4% alcohol spirit-based beverage, the spirit one would get taxed 10 times more for the same alcohol content per bottle or can. But what's the difference in the beverage? You know, not just the taxes. Like, what's the difference between a malt beverage and a spirit? No real difference there, other than if it's tequila, obviously it's going to taste like tequila. But if you're using, um, you know, a, a clean, neutral sugar malt versus vodka, no real difference. In my mind, I always thought malt, when it was malt beverage, I thought, oh, this is beer-based, and that one's spirit-based, meaning whiskey, gin, vodka. It used to be. They used to have a lot more inherent flavor in the base. They weren't able to really clean that up, but it's come a long way. Oh. See, like something like Smirnoff Ice, I never thought of that as a cocktail. I thought of that as a standalone beverage, obviously ready to drink, but standalone. But when I think of something like whiskey and ginger ale, you can pick like any whiskey you like. And then your ginger ale, obviously, doesn't really matter between brands, but diet or regular. So when it came out in a can, I've tried some of them. I'm like, well, that's not how I would mix it. They mixed it maybe a little too strong, a little too light, or they used a a whiskey that I wouldn't have used. And that's why I'm just marveled at these people are 
you know, not making their own. Maybe this generation doesn't know how to make a cocktail. I don't know. I mean, a lot of the the 20-somethings are using the seltzer products as a mixer for something else. They're not really having just the can of seltzer. I've tried one, and I don't remember what brand it was or anything. It was, it was whiskey and ginger ale, which is my favorite drink. And actually, whoever did it got it right. It's very weak on the whiskey and strong on the ginger ale, which is how I like to have my drink. So I'm happy with that one. Um, I understand things like hurricanes and, you know, all of those daiquiris and all the, you know, Mai Tai, all those kind of mixed cocktails because people really don't want to go three, four steps to make a cocktail. So they want to buy the whole, the whole mixed drink. You know, I mean, that's an interesting point is that some people actually do want to mix. They, they, you know, it's kind of like the people that watch all the cooking shows and, um, you know, learn about new ingredients and new ways to prepare things and want to try it out. There are some people that really do want to mix something and make a, a craft cocktail on their own. Uh, but you're absolutely right. There's another contingent who, you know, they want to keep something in the fridge and be able to just pour something when it's easy. Yeah. So it, it is hard. And and to your point, too, about how strong the whiskey is versus the ginger ale or whatever the, the other piece is, um, it's difficult to develop broadly where it's going to satisfy everybody. So sometimes you really have to pick your demographic and get specific. When you were doing these products, you know, making, coming up with all these different cocktails and drinks and line extensions, do you feel like a bartender sometimes? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, I mean, you sometimes you have to think about how it's going to be used. Um, so, I mean, I'm actually working on something right now where I made something that was at a good strength of flavor straight. Um but then I had to say, okay, well, I think most people are going to mix it. So I'm going to have to mix it and see if the flavor strength is still there. So I guess you should bring us up to date on what you're doing because you're no longer with the other spirit companies. And you're working now doing your own consulting? Yes. So that was a change. Um, what's it been? About eight or nine months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I decided that... You know, a lot of the consolidation in the industry was frustrating and moving for for jobs and then having things change with the company. Um, And I decided that I might as well bet on myself. So um, I was fortunate enough to start off with a good client who needed consistent, steady work over a period of months to get started and um, mm-hmm. Gave me time to build out the lab and capabilities and get my feet on the ground. And what kind of company is that? Is it a beverage company? No, no. It was an ingredient company who oh, okay. um, who had been pretty active in a different category and didn't know how to develop beverage products. They didn't know their customer set necessarily. Um, so I was hired to... Uh, develop products that would show their ingredients to the best effect and show the difference between their ingredient and competitive ingredients 
um, and then make some introductions to R&D people in the category and put together some demos, do a little business development um, to go show product developers how to use those ingredients um, and then kind of support them at trade shows as well. You're using all of your background, throwing everything at it. Yeah. Is that the best part? Then they use everything that you've ever learned. You know, it's interesting. Um, I was talking to a friend who works in the industry and I've known for a really long time. And, and she said, I'm, I'm amazed at how much, you know, and I said, well, that's the funny thing. You, you go along over the years of your career and you pick up pieces of information here and there and use them and make connections to other things. And you don't really think about it until you have an opportunity to put it all together and anything. That is quite a lot. What are, what are some of the hurdles that you, you encounter starting a new division or a new company? Well, remember when I said it's nice working for uh, larger companies because there's a lot of resources? Mm -hmm. Well, when it's your own business, you're your only resource. You know, you, uh, you're, you have to know uh, how to package and ship things for FedEx and when the cutoff is <laughs> for shipping you, uh, right? Because you're that department mm -hmm. too. Um, your yeah. procurement, you have to take the time to find ingredients. You have to um, take the time to build out a network of manufacturing partners and, um, and then, you know, pipeline, you know, you're, if you work for somebody else, somebody else is thinking about the pipeline and keeping that full so that you always have work to do. Um, but that's something, you know, when, you, when you're your own boss, you have to keep the pipeline full too. So there are a lot of things that you do that aren't just developing the product. The uh, company that you're helping with all of those things, they um, could that turn into a permanent job or is that something that you want to stay as a consultant? You're going to stay out here and work with lots of different people. You know, their goal is to build the company into something they can sell. Oh, okay. Um, which is, that whole thing is kind of why I decided to go consulting in the first place. Um, because when you, when you take a job and you move, and then their whole goal is to sell the company, you know, in two years time, you don't know what might happen. You know, They're, they might just fold everything into their own operations and not need you anymore. So, um, no, that's not really a, an option, I don't think. But So we've talked a lot about beverages, alcoholic beverages, some of the, all the different things you've had to do with it. But you haven't just been in beverages. You've worked in some other companies doing some other things, haven't you? Yeah, there was the the frozen foods at the very beginning with Stouffer's. Um, I also worked at Clabber Girl, uh, which is leavening systems for baking. And we also did a lot of dessert mixes for food service. So um, that was a departure from beverages as this was all dry blending, dry ingredients. So different kinds of processing, um, different kinds of quality concerns, um, you have to think about how people are going to reconstitute it to use it. Yeah, I mean that's Clabber Girl baking powder. No, that's we all know that we all have that in our in our pantry. So, was that a big switch? Did you have a a big learning curve, or as a food scientist, is that just a another twist to the plot? Yeah, I mean, of course, there were things to learn. Uh, fortunately, I had a coworker who literally wrote the book on chemical leavening. Um, or at least part of the chapter. 
Um, and so that was, that was very helpful. Um, but I guess I, in general, I would say that if you have really solid product development skills, it transfers across categories because Mm -hmm. it's more, you know, with engineering, they say it's, it's more of a mindset than anything, a -hmm. way of thinking. And, And I would say the same is true for food science and product development, because, um, you have to begin with the end in mind, but then you have to go back to, you have to start at the beginning and build in um, shelf stability, microbial stability, um, stability within a particular kind of package. Um, and so I would say that type of thinking and the the basic science that goes into making decisions about those things transfers across categories. You know, of course, you're always going to have a little bit of a learning curve uh, when you're working with new ingredients. But uh, I would say that the good product development skills transfer across categories. Now that we've gotten, you know, you've you've been working for a lot of years. So as as of now, what what is your passion? I think it's fun to see um, with entrepreneurs. It's kind of fun to see somebody that has a new idea and maybe not really having all the pieces of information about how they're going to get there, but a real passion and dedication for trying to get there anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's I'm working with a guy now who wants to include some ingredients that might pose quality risks, not only for his product shelf stability, but maybe in the contract manufacturing plant that he's planning on working with. And so um, he'd never really considered that it might be a problem for them in manufacturing. And so um, he's not letting that stop him, though. He's, you know, he's very focused on the solution. How do we get there? How do we find a solution? You know, what do we do? And I would say that's kind of fun working with people that are in that mindset. You know, they um, they're very focused on solutions and getting there and the ones that are also coachable and want to learn are the best. They're fun. What advice would you give to somebody who's thinking about getting into food science or may have just graduated? You know, there, there are some core classes that everybody takes in food science. Um, And then there are other ones that you can choose and I would say take all the specialty classes that you can manage to stuff in the dairy science, the meat science, the aseptic pack processing and packaging, because you don't know where you're going to end up. You don't know what you're going to end up needing. And, um, you know, having a really good foundation will take you anywhere. Um, but food science is just really fun. I mean, there's a lot of job security. People got to eat, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And we're, we're getting creative in ingredients and packaging technology and how we present this to people and how they're going to use it. We're getting more and more creative all the time. And so it's always different. Um, So, I guess you have to have that creative mindset, 
creative problem solving mindset. It's, um, you know, if you like things that are very predictable and um, you know what it's going to look like, probably not for you. Or at least not R&D. Maybe you should be in quality or... Yeah, quality would be a good spot. Yeah. Um, And I guess I would say, too, you've got to be a little creative in your career path. So I'll give you an example. Um, IFT has a a brand ambassador or a food science ambassador program. And I don't know if they're promoting it very much anymore, but um, they used to have a list of people who volunteered to be ambassadors and you would occasionally get calls for different things. And so one day I got a call from a young lady who was, I think, 15 months out of school into her career. She was working second shift quality control. She hadn't done any internships or co-ops. And her question was, if I go and get my master's, can I make $85,000 a year and be in product development. And I said, eventually. And she's like, no, but I mean, like right away, could I, could I do that right away? And I said, no, not really. Because, and she goes, well, I'd have my master's. And I said, yes, but you still wouldn't have any experience in that area, but I would have my master's. And I said, "I, I understand what you're saying, but Um, you know, you would still have a learning curve. Um, And I said, you know, if you're really interested right now, there are some things that you could do with your current employer. You know, if you, uh, if R&D is going to be running some sensory panels, you could volunteer to come in a little early and help them get set up and ask a lot of questions while you're doing it. Or if they've got a big project, they're, um, making a bunch of shelf life samples. You could volunteer to help make some of the shelf life samples and ask questions about why did you use this ingredient and why is this, um, you know, did you combine these two things? Why did you process it that way? And you're letting people know that you're interested in another area. You want to learn. You can be helpful. Um, and the next time there's an opportunity, maybe they'll look at you, even though you don't have experience, because you've put yourself out there and you've gained some experience by volunteering and helping. Um, and she didn't really like that answer. <laughs> I think <laughs> she thought going to grad school and having the master's would just be uh, the key to starting off ahead of the curve. And um, life doesn't really work that way. You didn't point out to her she'd be more in debt. <laughs> Yeah. And so I guess I would say, you know, take all the learning opportunities, be creative in your learning opportunities, get internships, uh, think about co-op, think about transferable skills, you know, um, you know, would a project management certification help me out and make me more versatile? Probably so. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I guess that's more tools in your toolbox. Get all mm-hmm. the tools in the toolbox you can. I talk to a lot of product development people, but I also talk to a lot of quality people. And for probably my first 20 years of my career, everybody wanted to be an R&D. 
because they made the most money and they had the cushy job. And it was Monday through Friday most of the time, unless there was a plant trial. And the QA people felt, you know, that they just had a plant job. But it, it flipped a few years ago. Quality, you know, just went crazy. And everybody was looking at the quality. The quality positions have outpaced the R&D people by salaries now. And they, and, and it's, you know, all those new regulations have come out, all these new things people have to do, and they have to do their, you know, the whole alphabet, the FISMA and the, and the uh, SQF and all the things. And they, the HACCP, and so they're, those jobs, why I tell people, if you're not creative, you don't want to be product development, look at quality assurance because it's a great career. And now the salaries have kept up or surpassed those people at corporate. And you eventually do end up in corporate if you want to be a director or a vice president of quality. Yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a good path if you've got a, a different personality or a different skill set or, um, you know, I would say, you know, people with a focus on packaging have a lot of opportunities too. Yes, very much so. Packaging is a good degree. And procurement. Yes. Well, there's the whole, I think that people don't realize, and that's why I've hoped, have helped with through the podcast, is showing people there's more to the food industry. I, I don't know where they think some of this food comes from. And I think people are learning that it's a business and it's just as difficult and scientific to make this food as it is to make a car, to make paint to make chemicals. I don't think they realized. I mean, in some ways, maybe more because uh, people are putting it in their bodies. Yes, very much so. Well, was there any other words of wisdom do you want to leave us with today? Because I, I do wish you well in the consulting because I think that that is a, that's a flexible type of, of endeavor and you'll get to meet people because as being a recruiter, that's what I am, a consultant. So you get to meet lots of different companies, lots of different people, lots of different applications, and it could be very fulfilling to be a consultant and work with all these customers. Yeah, it really is. It's it's a nice variety, um, some really interesting people that you get to meet and work with. Um, and I guess I I guess as far as advice goes, um, you know, it's a really it's a great industry. It's small. Um, you stick around long enough and you know a lot of people um, and they move around to different places. And uh, I guess I would say, you know, networking is important and uh, making connections is important, uh, genuine, sincere connections and people that you take with from job to job and they take you with them, um, you know, and everybody I would say really wants to help each other, you know, even though sometimes it's competitive, um, I would say it's a really friendly industry where people really want to help. And um, it's great to be working in this industry. And you had mentioned one of the challenges was geographically having to move. And I always say, if, if you, if you don't want to be in the uh, military, be in the food industry, cause you'll get to move a lot. 
That is true. And, you know, <laughs> when my, my daughter just graduated from college, but when she was trying to figure out what she wanted to study, that's one of the things that we talked about was, you know, she'd seen that we had to make some moves when she was growing up and in school because it's not like nursing or accounting where they need them everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, you have to move where there is an R&D center and that's a consideration. You know, sometimes when you're when you're young and you, you know, come from a place that it's okay, but you want to get out and see something different or something bigger, um, you know, that moving might sound pretty good. But 20 years in, uh, if you have kids and they're settled in schools and you have a spouse that has a job, you know, maybe all that moving isn't going to be so great then. Right. Um, so, um, you know, that's, that is something to think about too. Of course, you mentioned the quality jobs and, you know, there's a little more flexibility there because there are more manufacturing operations than there are R&D centers. So, um, yeah, that's definitely something to think about. Well, thank you for joining us. And um, I look forward to keeping in touch with you and seeing how this consulting works out in the next few years. Great. Thanks, Maureen. Yeah, it's been great. It's been fun. Talk soon. Thanks for coming.